0: We are exactly halfway through John's Gospel, exactly. In fact, if you unrolled an ancient scroll of John's Gospel and folded it in the middle, the crease would fall here in John chapter 11, which is kind of cool because John chapter 11 also has the central message of John's Gospel of eternal life for all. Uh, Do you remember in the prelude, the opening lines of the gospel, John said, in him, Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then at the very end of the gospel, he tells us his purpose in writing. These things are written, John 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And now we arrive at the middle of the gospel, and this central message of the gospel looms large as Jesus raises his dear friend Lazarus from death to life. And pretty close to the middle of this central chapter is a statement said at the front of every traditional funeral service for centuries. If you glance down at chapter 11, verse 25, Buff will soon read those uh, words. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Ten days ago, Andy Lowell's uh, father's funeral, Adrian Lowell's funeral, was here in the service. And Stuart's opening words were not, hi, my name's Stuart you know, lovely to see you, we're going to do something really important. He just began the service, exactly as we're instructed to, with the words, I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. It's very arresting. And it was a remarkable funeral. Andy Lowell made sure that that message was also at the heart of his eulogy for his dad who knew and loved the Lord. Funerals have begun that way with those words, as I say, for centuries. In fact, Here is how the Book of Common Prayer, that ancient text, insists that funerals are conducted. I've only ever led one funeral in exactly this way, but I want to try and give you a sense of it, and this is not going to be very good on the MP3, because I'm going to walk down the church, but here it is. I am the resurrection and the life, said the Lord. if the minister messes up the rest of the funeral, at least he got the first bit right. Now, I don't mind admitting that I'm probably a little more death conscious than the average happy Mossman boy who ventured all the way to Roseville. And I think it's because I lost a lot of people that I was very close to when I was pretty young. Um, Well, most of you know I lost my dad when I was nine in a plane crash. But I lost a lot of my dearest friends, actually. Uh, two of my best Mossman high mates, uh, Simon, killed at 16 a motorbike accident outside the Orpheum Theatre. Uh, Robbie uh, dropped dead in the classroom, in the maths classroom in year 10. I'd just been camping with Robbie the weekend before, and we stayed up all night telling ghost stories, and Asking each other if we believed in life after death. I kid you not. And then there was another dear mate. I'm not sure if you can see me. I won't bother pointing that out. But Jono, bottom left for you. I, I spent countless days with this guy. We were thick as thieves through primary and then high school. And then shortly after high school, pursuing his dream, he was killed in a chopper accident. Crashed into Cairns River. And it was very confronting. In fact, in my band days, I used to sing a song about Jono called Invincible. I miss you, God of the day. talked about death, I've thought about death, I've sung a lot about death over the years. I'm willing to admit maybe a little more than is healthy, but I tell you, it's a lot healthier than running away from death, from being awkward about death, from never thinking or talking about death, which is how our culture operates. I've led many funerals in this place over my 17 years uh, at St. Andrews, and uh, wow. I'm amazed at how many people are not just grieving at death, but really awkward in the face of death. It seems to be a particularly Anglo phenomenon, never wanting to talk about it. Now maybe it's uh, not psychologically healthy to dwell on death, but I'm sure it's illogical and perhaps tragicomical, never to think about death, never to think about life after death when it is the surest thing about life. So with that cheerful introduction, uh, let's now hear from this extraordinary passage, bit by bit, this central passage to John's gospel with this central theme of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Thanks, darling. So this is from John chapter
1: 11. Starting at verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now, lay, Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are they not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, known also as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this yes Lord she replied I believe that you are the Messiah the son of God who is to come into the world after she had said this she went back and called her sister Mary aside the teacher is here she said and he's asking for you
0: Uh, there are many things here that uh, I'd love to point out, but the, for me, the most striking thing across that whole unit is Jesus' tenderness and love in the face of anguish and death. Do uh, you notice verse 3 right up the front tells us that the message that was sent to Jesus was simply this Lord, the one you love is sick, the one you love is sick meaning Lazarus. And then in verse 5, in case we'd missed that first bit, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, let me just pause there, if you don't mind. Uh, Parenthetically, I just want to say it's really clear from a reference like this how much uh, the first Christians knew about the life of Jesus that we don't because they don't tell us They just give us the tip of the iceberg. I mean, here we are meeting a family for the first time in a town we've never been to, and yet we're told they are the nearest and dearest of Jesus. Perhaps there were dozens and dozens of visits to Bethany and this family that John knew of, but this is the only one He tells us, and the reason I'm just pointing this out is that it drives me nuts when skeptics think they find some gap or contradiction in the Gospels, as if they have total knowledge and any gap in the Gospels is some mistake on the Gospel writer's part. When, of course, a moment's notice would reveal that there's so much they knew that we don't. And so it's precarious and arrogant to say, I found a gap in the Gospels or a contradiction in the Gospels, when we have just the tip of the iceberg of the information they had. Now, last week I pointed out a classic example of this. Scholars doubted the existence of two bathing pools mentioned by John. And they said, oh, John made it up, right? But then they dug just slightly to the left in one case and slightly deeper in the other case, and they found these public bathing pools just as John had said instead of arrogantly saying, oh, I see a gap in the Gospels, I see some tension in the Gospels, I think we need to be a little more humble. What's recorded in our Gospels is just the tip of the iceberg of what the Gospel writers knew. And I think the average skeptic would be wise to remember that. Anyway, that's just for free tonight. It's not really part of the sermon. Uh, Back to this family, Jesus loved. that we've met for the first time, but they're So close to Jesus. And if you track down from verse 3 to verse 5 to verse 33, we get another indication of Jesus' emotional reaction. Verse 33 reads When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, some think that this means Jesus was angry with the mourners, for weeping when he's the resurrection, right? And this is because the language does actually mean he was grave and stern of spirit. That's literally what this means. And some think, oh, he's angry with them. I think that's an impossible reading. It just means he was, in the face of death, Struck with a profound seriousness. He was grave in his spirit. I'm even willing to accept a, translate, a translation like anger if what we mean is the anger that often accompanies grief. Because it makes no sense to say Jesus was angry with anyone. It doesn't fit with what comes in the very next line. Look at the very next line. Verse 34 Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Can you picture Jesus weeping outside a tomb? I find it very confronting. And then the Jews said, verse 36, "'See how He loved Him.'" Friends, this is not only a clear endorsement of your right to weep and grieve your loved ones, it is a beautiful insight into the unique mystery of the Christian faith that God Himself is grieved alongside us. According to the Christian scriptures and no other religious tradition, God knows your pain not just because He is all knowing, but because He has experienced pain. He has wounds, as the poet. Edward Shiloto wrote in his famous poem, Jesus of the Scars, following the devastation of World War I, he wrote, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone." Well, you might have thought that if Jesus loved this family so much, why didn't he save them from the grief, right? And in fact, that's exactly what uh, people say in verse 37. His detractors say, could not he who opened the uh, the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And indeed, verse 6 makes clear it's deliberate. Verse 6 says, Jesus deliberately stayed where he was two more days, which is precisely what let Lazarus die. So is this really loving? I want to say a strong yes, because Jesus has a gift of love that far exceeds saving people from grief. He wants to give these dear friends a glimpse, a tangible glimpse of resurrection, of eternal life. And on any logical reckoning, surely if eternal life is true, then it is the most loving thing you could do to give them a tangible glimpse of eternal life, to help them believe eternal life, to help them trust eternal life, to see it with their own eyes, as it were. And so in verse 14, it's quite serious when Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. It's almost as if, and I feel a little awkward saying this, almost as if Jesus puts aside his human instincts to save the day and save everyone from grief. Because what he knows they need above everything else is a picture of eternal life. It's love that delayed him. And it's love that then drove him to Bethany. And there's another act of love that is looming in the background. I don't want us to miss it tonight. It's quite important. Going to Bethany puts Jesus on the outskirts of Jerusalem because where is Bethany? Three kilometers from Jerusalem, just over the hill from Jerusalem and in the crosshairs of the Jerusalem authorities. We have known from chapter 5 and explicitly in chapters 9 and 10 that the authorities are talking about killing Jesus. And so it is an incredible act of daring and love to say, I'm going to Bethany. I'm, I'm going to be right near Jerusalem. And this is why Thomas says in verse 16, what I think when it was first read seems out of place, let us go that we may die with him. You just think, what? He's, he's going to see Lazarus? Well, he's not going to die. Well, yeah, he's traveling from the north to the south to within three kilometers of where he'll be arrested And in about a week from this event, he'll be dead. Jesus will be crucified. And my point is, everything in this passage is about Christ's love. It's love that delayed him. It's love that took him to Bethany, and it's love that takes him beyond Bethany to Jerusalem, to give his life for us. As readers... I am sure we're meant to look at this passage and say, See how he loves me. See how he loves me. And so now we come to the miracle itself from verse 38. Now, I'm not going to repeat the arguments uh, that I made uh, four or five weeks ago when we looked at John 5. If you're interested in the philosophical and historical arguments on behalf of the rationality of miracles, go back and check out the sermon. On chapter 5. Suffice it to say, before we hear this passage, uh, just this. If the natural laws which caused inanimate molecules to become life-giving DNA are the work of a lawgiver, if there's a creator, in other words, then it is entirely rational to believe that such a lawgiver could resurrect life out of death at a moment of his choosing. Which is to say, on any account of the universe, life came out of death at some point in the history of the universe, right? Inanimate molecules became life replicating DNA somehow. No one knows actually how it happened, but it happened. We know it happened. Now, if you think that's the result of a lawgiver, then you have all the philosophical arsenal you need to also conclude the lawgiver can do it whenever the lawgiver wants. They're his laws. The his molecules. All right. Let's hear then uh, this uh, gorgeous passage from verse 38. Thanks.
1: Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man, performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they had plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him.
0: Uh, At one level, the passage is uh, really basic and speaks for itself. Um, I could just sit down after saying, Jesus has the power of eternal life. Lazarus, come out. Uh, Yeah, at one level. Uh, But I want to make a theological point and a uh, psychological point, if that's okay. My theological point is this, the theology of the resurrection. Uh, A passage like this highlights one of the greatest contrast between what the Bible says concerning the afterlife and what our culture, at least for a hundred years, has said about uh, the afterlife. And pop culture normally thinks of the afterlife as fundamentally bodiless. So the hallmark card idea is that our loved one's spirit somehow has gone to be in some peaceful uh, bliss for eternity. And there's a Christian version of this Hallmark card as well that basically says our loved one is, um, you know, their soul is at peace with Jesus in heaven uh, forever. And uh, this is a good opportunity to just point out the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, There are two passages in the Bible that hint that our loved ones are in some mysterious sense asleep in the loving embrace of God after death. But they're just two hints. All of the emphasis of Scripture is on the resurrection of the body. The Apostles' Creed, which we will say later, and we've said many weeks here, uh, captures the doctrine of the afterlife beautifully because it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is not Jesus' body. Jesus' bodily resurrection was in the second stanza of the Creed. This is our body. We are waiting for the resurrection of the body. Eternal life in Christianity, unlike Buddhism and Hinduism and many Greek and Roman views of the afterlife, our view of the afterlife is not bodiless. It is precisely the resurrection of the body. And this is why the raising of Lazarus in this historical moment is such a wonderful sign of what God will do at the climax of history. Not that our spirits will go to heaven for eternity, but that God will raise our bodies. I don't just mean resuscitate them to be this puny self, but I mean gloriously raise them, transform them. The theology is beautifully laid out uh, by Martha, actually. Did you catch that? Verse 21. Lord Martha Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that extraordinary trust in Jesus? Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection... And the life, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. Uh, With International uh, Women's Day just gone on Friday, I can't resist pointing out that this is the longest back and forth between Jesus and a disciple in all of John's Gospel. Now, uh, there are other passages where the disciples get stuff wrong and Jesus corrects them and rebukes them, right? There are dialogues like that. But Martha gets everything right. This lengthy theological discourse about eternal life is between Jesus and a female disciple. She has listened to the teaching of Jesus, which is why at the end um, she calls him not just Messiah, the Son of God, what does she call him also? Teacher. The teacher is here, she says. And Martha is a nerd, she's a theological nerd. She loves doctrine. She gets her doctrine right. We're waiting for the resurrection of the dead on the last day. But the only thing Jesus reveals here is not a rebuke, it's not even a correction. It's to say he is the guarantor of this doctrine. He is the resurrection and the life. It's something Jesus has hinted at in other passages in John's gospel. John chapter 6, we read, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Very similar language to Martha's theological language. And later New Testament writers, like Paul, lay the same emphasis on resurrection, not spirits in heaven resurrection of the body. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those Who belong to him? This is the emphasis of all Scripture. Eternal life is not the thing that happens immediately upon death. That weird um, embrace in God's love that we are um, able to think about—you're able to think of your loved ones as in in the embrace of Jesus. Yes, but that's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on the last day, the great resurrection, because the Creator will not turn his back on creation. He loves material reality, and he intends to breathe life into material reality. I'm not saying it will just be these five senses for eternity, but it won't be less than these five senses, a glorified material reality. And that's why the raising of Lazarus within history is such a powerful sign of the doctrine of the resurrection, the whole New Testament teaches. And just parenthetically, can I, can I just say that this has no implications for whether you bury or cremate your loved ones. I had someone quite distressed this morning come up to me after, emph- you know, after I emphasized bodily resurrection. They felt that um, uh, cremating her father and scattering his ashes on the water was, you know, had done something terrible. <laughs> the Lord, the Creator, has every particle exactly where he knows it. Uh, he grants existence to every particle in the whole universe at every moment. There's no problem to him to raise the cremated. After all, think of how many Christian martyrs have been burnt to a cinder through Christian history. Anyway, that's the theological point the uh, resurrection of the dead. I want to make a, a psychological point about the psychology of belief Uh, The final lines, say, picking up from verse 45, tell us about the wildly different reactions to this sign. Uh, Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. There's no ambiguity here. They trusted him. Contrasted in the next verse, but some of them went to the Pharisees and dobbed Jesus in. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Whenever you see the word Sanhedrin, you know it's serious. This is the 70-person council that ruled Israel. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then John makes that really sly comment in verse 51, and I think we're to interpret it slyly, about Caiaphas accidentally prophesying about the true meaning of Jesus' death, right? See, Caiaphas intended his words as, can't you see that one man politically has to be the scapegoat here? because we don't want the Romans to punish us for this man's huge following, for public disorder, so let's hand him over to the Romans and in that sense relieve our nation of uh, punishment from the Romans. But John says it's an unwitting prophecy about Jesus dying in the place of not only Israel but of the lost sheep around the whole world. Jesus was a spiritual scapegoat. He died on our behalf, not to save us from Roman punishment, but to save us from the judgment of God for our sins, that we might be forgiven. Anyway, the priests listen to this and jump into action, along with the Pharisees. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They've been talking about this for over a year. From way back in chapter 5, they've been talking about this, but now they have a plan And the plan is there in verse 57 at the end. The chief priests and the Pharisees gave orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. That's kind of ominous because we know who it was that obeyed those orders and told the authorities where Jesus was. It was Judas, one of his own disciples. Anyway, here's my point. The actions of Jesus divide the world. Some trust him as the resurrection and the life, and others want him dead. Or at least out of their face, please. I know I've quoted before from The Righteous Mind, New York Times bestseller by Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist uh, and professor of um, evolutionary psychology at New York. University. Now, I rank this as one of my favorite books of the last 10 years, but it's a review of the huge amount of psychological material making perfectly clear that we humans, whether religious or irreligious, left or right, educated or not so much, all of us tend to make our decisions about what we believe based on our preferences, desires what we wish. It's powerful stuff, very confronting. And here's how he put it uh, in one part of the book. We ask, can I believe it, when we want to believe something? But must I believe it, when we don't want to believe? The answer is almost always yes to the first question. And no to the second. Huh. I have an agnostic friend in London who, after hours of conversation and discussion and back and forth, has actually come to a pretty firm conviction that, on the balance of probabilities, Jesus probably rose again. But has he become a Christian? No way. He doesn't know what box in the universe to place his conviction that something like a resurrection took place, but he's pretty sure it doesn't mean he ought to become a Christian. What is going on there? And it's not just happy pagans in London. Uh, There are full-blown historians, experts in this matter, like uh, Pincus Lapid, an Orthodox Jew and a professor from Bar-Ilan University, who wrote an entire book on the resurrection of Jesus called The Resurrection of Jesus in which he uh, ends up concluding that on the uh, on the evidence the resurrection of Jesus is uh, quote the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation but Did Professor Lepide decide that he should become a Christian? Not a chance. In fact, a huge part of the book is an ingenious explanation of why he doesn't need to become a Christian, even though he's concluded on historical grounds that Jesus rose again. He argues that maybe God raised the heretic Jesus in order to start a new religion... That wasn't quite true but was an improvement on paganism that would take off in the Greek and Roman world and get those pagans off polytheism to monotheism, off immorality to a vaguely Jewish ethical frame, Christianity. That God had this kind of secondary way of helping the Greek and Roman world and so did the party trick of the resurrection to make it happen. Uh, I think we call that rationalisation. And I know that's often thrown at Christians, right? In the form of, uh, you guys can't handle life and death, so you just invent this crutch to rely on, right? Yeah, 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 sure, sure. But the shoe is very often on the other foot. Because loads of Australians know that there's very probably a creator behind the universe. And all of the surveys bear this out. But do they take that seriously? Do they pursue that? Hmm. A huge number of Australians think that if anyone had a connection to the divine, it was probably Jesus. But do they pursue that? No. They rationalise. Keep their distance because of preferences. Sometimes just distractions and rationalisations. And I want to say As we land in the middle of John's gospel, in the center, as it were, today is a good day to give up rationalizations, distractions, and preferences, and confront the crucified and risen Jesus, the resurrection and the life, and hear him ask you what he asked. Martha, do you believe? Do you believe? She said, yes, Lord, I believe. In my first year as your rector, yes, I'm getting a little bit sentimental. In my first year as rector, I met this man, James garbett magistrate of the Court of New South Wales. And... I remember when he uh, came in uh, one day, uh, he was sitting about where Mark and Virginia are there. And it was the 8 o'clock service, so he kind of stood out, right, because, you know, there weren't that many people in the, in the service. So, and I was on that day, and I went and introduced myself to him, and he said, look, you might be cynical about this, but I've just received a terrible cancer diagnosis. And I thought, I better, you know, just have another look at Christianity. He said, you might be cynical about that. And I was like, no way. I'm the last person to be cynical about that. But he went on to say, look, there's nothing like really thinking you're going to die to concentrate your mind and realize what's really important. And to me, it's family. And if there's a God, God. That's what he said. And so began months, but not enough months, of beautiful conversation with this fiercely intelligent man. I'd go over to his flat, which was just over the back here, and have a cup of tea with him. And we'd talk about everything, the Trinity, predestination, uh, creation, Genesis. It was wonderful. He read the Gospels and reread the Gospels. And he said to me one day, it's really striking as I think about the history and think about my legal career, how similar they are. Because it's about weighing testimony. And making firm judgments based on good or poor testimony. And stacking the testimony up against each other. And he said, it's amazing to me as I reflect back on my career, what huge decisions I've made for people based on testimony. And he said to me one day, I've read the Gospels through. And this can't be made up. This is good testimony. He had loads more questions. There were no angels singing or lights shining. But he came to believe, especially the resurrection accounts, were good testimony and his only hope of eternal life. I saw James three days before he died. But this time he was in Greenwich Hospital. He was in a morphine stupor and I went and visited him and I said, James, it's John. Do you want to pray? And he shot his hand up through the sheets and grabbed hold of my hand. And I prayed, I don't know, some, I don't know, I wasn't in the right headspace, something probably useless, but by the time I got to the amen, he was back to sleep. And three days later, he was gone into the loving arms of the one who is the resurrection and the life. His funeral was something else the next week. It was here. And someone from the 8 o'clock service this morning was there and was reminding me how spectacular it was because it seemed like the legal fraternity of New South Wales turned up. And there was eulogy after eulogy. There were messages from the president of the Law Council. It was just, it was awesome. But one after another, they said, James Garbutt was a man of impeccable judgment. That was the phrase they kept on using, impeccable judgment. And I'm sitting there going, right, that's my sermon then. So when I got up to give my sermon, I said, you've just said what impeccable judgment he had. Let me tell you about his final, most impeccable judgment. He read the Gospels and was convinced the resurrection accounts are good testimony. And he believed. He died trusting. It's weird to think I have just three more weeks with you as a rector. You know, I really just want to make this very clear. I don't want to think anyone has been in my hearing and not heard Jesus' question, do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? He died for your sins so you could be forgiven. He rose again as the guarantee of eternal life. Do you believe Will you believe? If you are in any doubt about this, will you come and talk with me? Will you email me in these final weeks? And I'll make time to chat with you. Because I want to finish well. And the only way I can finish well is if I tell you repeatedly... Jesus died for you, he rose for you, he is the resurrection and the life, and you can know that life forever. So Lord, will you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, wills to believe. that we might know you as the resurrection and enter into life.